Welcome to Innovating Clinical Trials, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Until recently, the model used for traditional randomized clinical trials has not changed since it was first introduced in 1948. Now, transformation is underway. Speed and efficiency need to improve as many patients cannot wait over a decade for new, potentially life-saving medicines and trial participants need to better reflect the whole patient population. Because clinical trials are complex and multidisciplinary, there is not a single simple solution. What does innovation in clinical trials look like? In this series, host Rob Lenz, Amgen's Senior Vice President of Global Development and experts leading next-generation clinical trials, explore trends and drivers in design and execution to improve trial quality and safety, decrease costs, and improve predictability, reliability, and speed. Our understanding of human biology and disease is progressing at an unprecedented pace. And clinical trial development and execution need to evolve just as quickly to deliver potentially life-saving medicines to patients who simply can't wait. We also need to recruit underrepresented patients into trials, which requires us to think differently about how we identify and recruit patients. In this episode, I talked to Cynthia Verst, President of Design and Delivery Innovation for Research and Development Solutions at Acuvia, a global provider of advanced analytics, technology solutions, and clinical research services. We discussed the drivers for applying innovation in the clinical trial execution space and how the clinical trials model is evolving across the industry thanks to modern innovations. Over the last decade, there's been tremendous innovation in the clinical trials area, including the use of things like trial simulations to optimize trial design and improve efficiency, and advances in statistics and computing to support such simulations. But there's relatively little new innovation in executing these trials, including identifying potentially successful trial sites with investigators and patient populations appropriate for trials needs. One part of trial execution is monitoring patients' vital signs and responses to treatments. Cindy, will you compare and contrast the way we traditionally monitor our clinical trials with the advancements that are happening now, especially in the area of AI and machine learning? Yesteryear, when we were conducting clinical monitoring, we're sending clinical research associates at the investigator site physically and compare the data that the investigator entered into the electronic data capture system, otherwise known as EDC, the CRA, the clinical research associate, would sit with the hard copies or the electronic files that were blinded and do what's called a source data verification. So what the investigator entered into the EDC was the authentic data in the patient's hard copy binder. It was then the CRA's individual responsibility to look at some of the data trends and to ensure when they were writing this up in their monitoring visit report, if they were seeing issues, were leaving the impetus on the human to find these signals and trends. 
As we're advancing, we're using more AIML and more algorithmic predicting capabilities where we're running in the background in a blinded manner where patients are de-identified within the data of the EDC, we're able to identify duplicate subject registrations, looking at their clinical data, their lab data, etc. Also, being able to look at trends over time and identifying safety concerns, as an example with abnormal lab tests, where we're not relying solely on humans. I'm not suggesting that the human on-site visits will be obviated altogether. It's the, the human component being augmented with machine learning capabilities that's helping to detect and respond very quickly to ensure two things. We are in the eternal pursuit of ensuring patient safety, first and foremost, and secondly, integrity of clinical data so that we can draw the appropriate efficacy and safety conclusions. This is one of the rare instances where you have all three levers being pulled in the same direction. That's improving quality and patient safety, decreasing cost through the automation, and and increasing speed as one can interrogate these data literally real time without the need to send uh, folks out on a plane uh, to an investigative site. One approach that's been getting a lot of attention is decentralized trials. And we know that about 70% of patients live more than two hours from a clinical site, making it highly inconvenient or simply just not feasible for them to make that commute routinely. Unlike the traditional site-based trials that require participants to regularly visit brick-and-mortar sites and have their assessments done there on site, the decentralized trials bring the trial to the subject, say, at their home. And there's a lot that's required to make such a fundamental shift in how these trials are conducted. Share with us what some of those foundational elements and differences are. Decentralized clinical trials being developed and deployed prior to the pandemic, if it was not for these DCT capabilities, we would have never conducted and completed the vaccine trials when we did. And I really liken this to three major reasons why will continue to be the case of DCT helping us to accelerate clinical trials uh, today and in the future. The first is the digital technology component. That is the backbone behind DCT. From everything we're doing in, in terms of accessing and recruiting patients to conducting the trial and ensuring that we're collecting the right data at the right time with the right quality, The digital technology component is incredibly important. Being able to use digital footprints, digital journeys with patients, meeting them where they are in the communities is of top importance. Part two is to bring trial components to the patient's home. So those are services like phlebotomy, going and and collecting blood samples, or delivering um, investigational product to the patient's home, or delivering follow-up and observational data collection via nurses or other staff at the patient's home. The third pillar is strategic partners like pharmacy networks. Each American is, on average, three to five miles away 
from a pharmacy near them. We see this as another huge opportunity in offering decentralized trials and affording much greater participation for diverse populations and underserved patient populations. It's incredible just how rapidly the adoption of these decentralized approaches have come into the clinical trial space. I'd imagine it's going to continue to play an incredibly important role with the end result of dramatically increasing the proportion of patients who can participate in a trial. As we think about moving forward, one of the big questions that the FDA has had is what do we think the durability of this will be? The sustainability of those pandemic novel trial executional capabilities is really on everyone's mind. I suspect the jury is still out relative to data quality. It is going to be up to us, clinical research organizations, industry associations, demonstrating that there is no negative trend in terms of uh, data quality. When we talk about DCT, we also have to include connected devices where there is that continuous stream of data in a way that's reducing burden on patients and sites, ensuring patient safety along the way. Regulators are going to be a very important body that will enable the sustainability of DCT. One other barrier that could you know, preclude the use of decentralized approaches or virtualized clinical trials is it's probably not equally as applicable to all diseases. When there's very little known about the safety of a medicine or disease areas where the patients are particularly sick or those drugs may have particularly high risks in that patient population, those may be ultimately less amenable to decentralized approaches. But when we think about the, the vast majority of the later phase large trials, it certainly seems like those would be amenable to these types of approaches. One of the other advantages is to increase the participation in underrepresented populations. Are we seeing an actual increase in participation from these underrepresented populations through these approaches, or is it just simply too early to know? We're heading in the right direction, but I think that we've got more work to do. In certain therapeutic areas like hepatitis, like HIV, you know, we're seeing some movement in terms of beginning with what I call diversity by design. That's something that we adopt here at IQVIA. It's going to take the whole healthcare ecosystem leaning in here to help with the building of trust and, and the building of transparency, designing protocols, as well as executional operational strategies that's going to reduce the burden, enhance and augment and encourage participation from underrepresented, diverse, and inclusive populations. And then it's also how we operationalize. We're going to need an investigator network that is comprised of diverse investigators, diverse operational clinical research coordinators. They are more apt to recruit diverse patient populations. So how do we educate our investigators and ensure that we've got the ability to lean in to community grassroots efforts, that we are partnering with our patient advocacy associations, that we are leaning into the industry associations. That's where we'll begin to see the needle moving in terms of ensuring 
clinical trials have diverse populations, epidemiologically speaking. One potential enabler of decentralized or virtualized trials is the use of wearables or other passive data collection mechanisms. There's definitely been some interesting advances in devices that have received FDA approval for monitoring things like vital signs or heart rhythm, movement, or even glucose monitoring. Have these really transformed how we're doing clinical trials? What do you think some of the barriers have been? We're already making dramatic improvement in terms of reducing the patient-derived and investigator-derived burden of data collection. Just five, seven years ago, we had investigator-derived data being inputted to the tune of about 70% of, of data coming from clinical trials. And we're now seeing that 70% being reduced down to 35% as a direct consequence of connected devices, wearables, patches, etc. Passive data collection comes with some terrific upsides, not only just like DCT and risk-based monitoring, where we're going to be able to increase the data quality. We're going to be able to do this in more real time, affording the ability to track the data and sense and respond if there is patient safety concerns. We've got some time before we see a complete revolution because we'll always need the doctor in the equation. We have access to unprecedented amounts of data, including clinical trial data, through mechanisms like the Transcelerate Placebo Standard of Care Sharing Initiative, which allows companies to share subject-level data from study participants who receive placebo or standard of care, as well as real-world data, such as claims data or electronic health records data. Where do you see some of the greatest potential and greatest applications of such data sets to clinical trials? And how are we using these large data sets to optimize the clinical trial execution all parts, particularly feasibility studies, where we need to project if a clinical trial will be successful if it's conducted in a certain geographical region, site, or within certain investigators? We're shifting the paradigm that we don't conduct feasibility by firstly going to sites and saying, how many patients do you have, Dr. Smith, that might be eligible for this protocol? We're moving toward obviating that step to improve and accelerate timelines and accelerate productivity. Now, another related area that we're seeing in terms of innovative trial designs because of the complexity of cell and gene therapy trials we have some post-marketing commitments that range from 10 to 15 years of long-term follow-up. Conducting those in a traditional clinical trial setting is simply cost-prohibitive and too unduly burdensome for patients. Being able to follow patients in a more simplified approach whereby we're able to use the real-world claims data pharmacy data, hospital data sets, we're able to sense and respond and actually follow those patients up in a way that's meeting regulatory requirements, as well as satisfying long-term safety data collection. You mentioned enrollment as one of the areas that we're seeing the utilization of machine learning. Industry metrics tell us that anywhere between 11% up, up to a third of sites never enroll a single patient. The traditional approach, sending surveys out to potential site participants is simply very inefficient and, and terribly poor at predicting who will be 
a good versus not good enroller. One of the particular areas of focus for us is using this data along with the advanced predictive analytics, including machine learning to help us identify who will be those performing sites as well as the non-performing sites. You know, the machine learning algorithms we build allow us to look across thousands of, of attributes at a site simultaneously. So things like what their specific patient population is, what the trial complexity is, requirement for genomic screening capabilities, et cetera. Do you see this movement towards utilizing machine learning specifically in identifying those high-performing sites as a broader trend or movement in industry? Absolutely. Over the last five and a half years, we've been able to prove that through machine learning, we're able to connect that individual investigator with attributes such as their current real-time eligible patient population, linking that to past and contemporaneous clinical trial experience, quality of that experience, were they associated with any critical or major audit findings, as well as looking at their clinical trial landscape in their particular setting. We can take all those attributes and running those predictive algorithms, we are able to sort investigators by tier. We have statistically significant data suggesting that the engine is properly predicting the top enrollers. What do you see as really transformative opportunities that are not quite ready for prime time today, but maybe they will be, say, five years from now? Using drug discovery, AIML, on the clinical development side is going to move needles for us. Being able to be more predictive, for instance, biomarker identification, being able to precisely identify and target patient phenotypes and genotype profiles, patient segmentation, and being able to target those populations more expeditiously. It's really just impressive to see how much innovation is being applied specifically in clinical trial executional aspects. Cindy, it's been great and fun and educational for me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Indeed, Rob. It's been a pleasure joining you on this exciting topic. Thank you for listening to Innovating Clinical Trials. And thanks again to Cynthia Verst, President of Design and Delivery Innovation for Research and Development Solutions at IQVIA. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Innovating Clinical Trials Q&A webinar discussion on September 28, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. A lot of useful information concerning patient health is collected outside of clinical trials. Through advancements in data analysis, these data can be used in different ways. In the next episode of Innovating Clinical Trials, we'll talk to Brian Bradbury, Vice President for the Center for Observational Research at Amgen, about using real-world data to revolutionize clinical trials. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. 
Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.